Snap Studios. You're listening to Snap Judgment. We begin today's show up high. Jason Smith, Tommy Caldwell, Beth Rodden, and John Dickey. The pro rock climbers. Pro, the freest of the free, the bravest of the brave. They get paid to travel the world and climb the hardest and most exotic rocks. In 2000, North Face sponsored the four of them to do a climb in the mountains of Kyrgyzstan to scale the famous Yellow Wall. Snap Judgment. This location in Kyrgyzstan has been popular with backpackers, especially Europeans, for a long time, not just climbers going there. So for about 20 years before we had gone there, there was people traveling there every year. So it had a reputation of being a safe place to go? A destination, yes. The climbers were used to massive peaks and dangerous cliff faces. But still, as their helicopter descended into the Karasu Valley and the yellow wall came into view, they were blown away. Probably what impacted us the most that we weren't ready for was the, the scale of the Himalayas. Just how much bigger the mountains are than everything we have over here. At first it was a little bit difficult to wrap our heads around. That's Jason Smith. He'd put the whole expedition together and was the de facto leader of the group. There was John, the photographer, Beth, the world-class and only female climber of the group, and her boyfriend Tommy, who was the youngest of the four. For Tommy, the Yellow Wall was his first big sponsored climb. It's about a thousand foot tall, really yellow chunk of granite that is shaped a bit like a, like a snowplow blade. A really sheer rock face, like no ledges to really stop on. After a few rough starts, they set up a little base camp for their supplies and scoped out the terrain. Then once everything was prepped and ready, they set off. In the first day, we made it about halfway up the wall. It was a uh, pretty, Pretty nice evening, actually. I think it was Tommy's 20th birthday, and we had a little party for Tommy. We had chocolate pudding. Went to bed at about 10 o'clock that night, up on the mountain, looking down on the world. It was a beautiful night. It's no natural light anywhere, so the stars are just brilliant. It was pretty, pretty dreamy, you know? Well, we were asleep on the cliff in our two portal edges. Beth and Tommy were in one and John and I were in the other. It was about 6.15 in the morning. Kind of as the first rays of light started to fill the sky in the morning, a gunshot cracked off. It was rattlingly scary. And the bullet hit the wall 15 feet away. So we all kind of got showered by rock fragments. You can't run away. The portal edges are made of fabric on the bottom, so you're half expecting bullets to just rip through you from the, from the bottom up. A second gunshot went off, and at that point I could see that there was three people at the base of the cliff that we were on. John Dickey, the photographer, he had a long camera lens, so he put it on his camera and he looked down and he could see these scary-looking guys um, with the guns and they were, they were waving to us to come down. And so John went ahead and volunteered to go down first. And then he almost immediately radioed up to me and he said, hey, these guys, uh, they'd really like for you to come down and have a talk. As soon as I got to the ground, I was greeted by these uh, two gentlemen who were wearing camouflage clothing. Um, one of them had a Patagonia Gore-Tex jacket on 
and some really nice climbing sunglasses and he had a tube of Colgate and a Colgate toothbrush in his ammo uh, pockets on his vest that he was actually quite proud of. Jason's first thought was that these men were bandits, but they didn't act like bandits. They shook his hand and introduced themselves. There was uh, the commander who uh, called himself Abdul. There was the guy with the Gore-Tex jacket and sunglasses who was called Obert, and he was just overtly friendly. Um, he was grinning from ear to ear, really happy to meet us. They, they seemed like they had pretty chill attitudes, but they had big guns. <laughs> and so they're, they're just basically like, follow us. Abdul led them back to the base camp the climbers had just set up a few days earlier. They watched as a handful of armed men were rifling through their supplies. Abdul directed them to sit down next to another hostage, a man in a military uniform they recognized as the Kyrgyz officer who had issued their travel permit. But I didn't immediately register that fact um, because when he stood up to make room for me to sit on this rock, um, I noticed that he was covered from the waist down in blood. He was completely saturated. He started pointing to the blood on his pants. Yeah, it was, it was... The Kyrgyz officer's name was Tarat, and he was signaling to them, secretly, that these kidnappers had already killed three other Kyrgyz officers. I think he saw the look on my face, which was probably ashen, and he held up three fingers, and then he, he swiped one finger across his throat. It seemed as if Abdul's men were not Kyrgyz. They were some kind of militant rebels, and they were preparing to move the whole group somewhere else. And if they want to move us somewhere, that means they have to be somewhat kind to us. We didn't have a lot of things that we were going to be able to exploit, and that was one of them. We could exploit cooperation, our level of cooperation. Abdul and his men broke down camp, took all the supplies they could carry, and began to march everyone at gunpoint over the rugged terrain. The climbers and the other hostage, Tarat, had no choice but to obey. And then suddenly, above them, there was a new, even deadlier threat. Kyrgyz helicopters, military helicopters, started to fly around overhead, and that's when everything changed. It got really frantic. In what had been a silent Himalayan valley just a few hours earlier, a firefight erupted. Abdul pointed up to the helicopter and mimed, Go hide, or we will shoot you. So the hostages belly crawled through the brush. Suddenly, they were dodging bullets from every which way. The helicopter was shooting from above, and more Kyrgyz soldiers crested a hill and were closing in on the rebels, who were also returning fire. There was a lot of machine gun fire. They had these kind of grenade launcher things that started to fly. There was these mortars. They'd shoot it and you'd have this whistling noise and you'd hear it coming towards you. And then there'd be an explosion. Abdul led the hostages through the brush, zigzagging from tree to tree. They ran for hours up and down sharp, steep gorges alongside fast-moving rivers. And so we kind of escaped the, um, the line of sight of these soldiers. Um, and we went running across this plateau to the adjacent valley. And Tarat came over and sat next to me. And he put his hand on my knee and he squeezed it really, really tightly. And he looked me right in the face and he pointed across this valley. And he said, I'm going to die over there. 
And I kind of did what I think anybody would do, which is to lie to him and to tell him that we were all in this situation together and everything's going to be okay. And uh, he told me to shut up. And he said, listen to me, I'm going to die over there. And that means that you need to do something about this situation. Only moments later, Abdul's men motioned for the group to move behind a large boulder. At that boulder where they whistled at us and told us to go one at a time, and Tarot was the first one to go. Um, so Tarot went up there, and then as soon as he got there, they shot him point blank in the head. The four of us um, had to come up after that and sort of walk around the boulder and see him lying there with a pool of blood coming out of his head, and then we had to basically crouch and lay on top of his body for the next hour or two until we finally fled the scene of the battle. Night fell, and the adrenaline was starting to wear off. We finally got up to this ridge where um, we were able to stop and sit down, and we had a we had a break, and there was kind of a very strange feeling. The crossfire was gone. The helicopter was gone. But their food, water, and supplies were also gone. And so we ended up with just a few things in our pockets, which I think was eight power bars, uh, a three musketeers bar. Abdul's men scattered during the firefight. Now there was only three men left. Abdul himself, Sue, the shy one, and Aubert, the friendly one. Aubert had a few pieces of hard candy that he shared. He pulled five of them out of his pocket, and he kind of looked around at the other people other than himself, and you could see him doing the math. And he ended up taking one of the pieces and giving my friends and I the other four pieces. And I think that, for me, that was the moment I knew that we could beat this if we just played our cards right. Abdul had relaxed a little bit. The climbers were no longer at gunpoint, and there was an unspoken agreement that everyone would stay together. That is, until they came to this river. It was a really fast raging river, and they were having a hard time with it. They started trying to take this, this fallen tree and, and, and get it across the river to make a bit of a bridge. And Jason um, decided in this moment that he was going to help him, and I didn't understand why. I don't swim and I'm like a cat in the water, so I was actually terrified. So I just committed and I charged out there and I... He just grabbed the log and just plowed into this raging torrent of water and was like almost getting swept away, barely able to hold onto this log. And I got about three quarters of the way across and uh, I ended up stepping off this boulder and plunging into the main current and I was right at the top of a waterfall and I thought to myself like, oh, nice work, idiot because now you're going to heroically drown in front of your friends. But he managed to get himself completely soaked, but also get the, get the log across the river and then get safely onto the other riverbank. And that allowed the rest of us to sort of walk across this log and get across the river. And Abdul came over, and I was reaching up my hand and trying to grab his hand and pull him up on the rock. And he was terrified. He was rocking on this log. And... Um, he was very hesitant to grab my hand, and I was trying really, really hard to establish that connection. That's just what I wanted, is even if he didn't need a hand, I wanted him to have to take my hand to get up. It ended up to be kind of a moment of brilliance. And instead, he reached out and he gave me his rifle. 
And I was like, well, that's even better. Will Jason take his revenge? Can he rescue his friends from this nightmare? Find out when Snap Judgment, the Back to the Wall episode continues. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Back to the Wall episode. When last we left, a group of climbers traveled to Kyrgyzstan only to find themselves held hostage, pawns, in a dispute they knew nothing about. And one of the captors has just handed over his gun to his hostage, Jason, in order to cross a raging river. Snap judgment. And so I took his rifle and I turned around and I very intently gave it to John and I said, here, John, do you mind holding this for a minute? And I think that's probably when John's frame of mind started to shift. And I grabbed Abdul's hand and I pulled him up and he was just so happy he was smiling from ear to ear and he was patting me on the back and asking me if I was a soldier. They looked at him and they kind of held up their guns in like this triumphant moment and they like patted him on the shoulder and they're like, soldat, like soldier. Like they're like, you, you want to help our cause. And the dynamic between the, you know, our captors and us completely changed at that moment. They, they actually believed that we were trying to help their cause and that we were totally on their side. Over the next few hours, John the photographer tried to communicate to Abdul, asking what the story was here. And Abdul tried to explain, but he explained it as if he was letting them in on the rebellion. And his story was that, that we understood, was that there are a group of people who want to have their own little state up in the mountains where they herd goats and they pray and they mind their own business but there's this guy in their country that's in charge, that's a really bad guy. He elected himself president for life, and they're not allowed to freely study their religion. The men were from Uzbekistan, where things were pretty complicated at the time. There was a communist-leaning dictator-type figure, several large movements to install a Muslim state, 
and a handful of Muslim splinter groups with specific demands, like their captors. He explained to John that we were all going to go to this other place, and then his boss was going to get on the phone and call Bill Clinton, and they were going to talk this out, and then we were all going to go home. Their captors' plan was to focus international attention on the hostages and themselves, ultimately to expose the repressive regime they were forced to live under. They had a sympathetic story, for sure. But Jason still believed that they could not count on ransom or rescue. Their best shot at living was to escape, by any means necessary. Um, I mentioned to John that, you know, at least one of these guys is going to have to die for us to get out of this. And um, my partners were opposed to that sort of course of action. We sort of split into two groups of thought. I remember Beth and myself were pretty adamantly against doing anything drastic to escape. We thought we should just try and wait it out. Jason and John wanted to take matters into their own hands and the idea of killing somebody. And and in some ways, we 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 didn't see our captors as 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 evil as you might think. Even though we had seen them murder somebody, I very much saw them as victims of circumstance in some ways, especially the guy that Jason and I were with every day. He was like a 19-year-old hired mercenary. Like, I could look at him and be like, who's to say that I wouldn't be right there in his same, you know, doing the same thing he was doing. But Jason would talk all day long every day in sort of code so that they wouldn't know what we were talking about but he would strategize about how we would pick up rocks and bash in their skulls or stab their necks with sticks or gouge out their eyes and he talked in these very very gory details but he did it in this voice that made it sound like you were talking about what you were going to make for dinner if you're talking about killing some guys right in front of them you have to very consciously change your tone of voice to like as if you're talking about unicorns and bunnies and My Little Pony or something. It was, it was kind of disturbing. You know, I had to consider if we had to bite these guys' throats. Am I going to jump on this guy and just bite his throat? Because teeth are a sharp weapon that I've got. Might be better than a stick or a rock. And um, yeah, of the many ways we might be able to deal with these guys, some were a little bit more bloody than others. As they marched on through the rocky terrain, one of their captors, Aubert, split off. Now it was only two captors with guns to four climbers. They walked and walked for a whole night, then rested for a day, and then did it again. They did this for three days, starving. And I came up with this really good game to play to pass the time um, where we would see who could go the longest without asking what time it was. And you start imagining exactly what you're going to eat when you get home, and where you're going to go to buy the f supplies. And then you imagine eating it, and then you start trying to count again. And then finally one of us broke and asked what time it was, and we took guesses. And it turns out it had been five minutes. And uh, I think that's probably when Tommy changed completely. It was an amount of suffering that I, I mean, it was just uncomprehendable. We were starving to death. We were always shivering. And, you know, our teeth were super sore from chattering all the time. The days just felt unbelievably long. They did have a few things going for them. They could navigate this mountainous terrain much better than Abdul's hungry, sleep-deprived men. They could also communicate their plans with each other, openly, as long as they kept their tone of voice deceptively positive. Abdul seemed to have no idea that his captives were plotting escape, because... He came to Jason with a proposal. 
and he said, so here's the deal. I'm gonna go back up to your guys' base camp and I'm gonna get some of the food and clothes that we left there because we're all hungry and cold. And then you guys are all gonna go together. Abdul wanted the climbers to continue up the mountain, along with only one of his men as guard. And that one guard was Sue, the 19-year-old. He kind of said it in this weird way where like, we would take Sue safely up this mountain where there was a plateau on top and then he was gonna come and meet us. And then we were all gonna go together to somewhere that was safe. And it obviously meant that he had bought the story that I'd spent a week selling to him. He bought a hook, line, and sinker. And so I grabbed his arm and begged him to not leave. And I just started pleading with him not to go. It's dangerous out there. There's soldiers everywhere. We don't want him to get shot. And he was had to tear himself away from us. We were all grabbing him and begging him to not go. He, he had this look of like, he's like, no, I have to do this for everybody. I have to go. We're all going to be better off. They split up, Abdul trekking down towards the base camp, while Jason and his crew led Sue up the mountain. Now it was four to one. I felt like my rib cage was going to explode. It was just this ball of excitement that was like coming from my stomach up to my heart. And I just wanted to scream out loud because, you know, one guy's got a gun, one guy's got two guns and a hand grenade and a knife. And you remove like all of that and you leave like one dumb kid with a gun with four other kids. It's like completely changes everything. This was a very gnarly climb, I think. Basically anybody who's not a climber would have been terrified on this sort of train, especially since it was the middle of the night. And so John and I immediately um, communicated to each other that it was game on and this was gonna happen and we all started kinda moving up this mountain together. And I'm always trying to find I'm trying to always kind of direct Sue away that looks like the easiest way, but also puts him in the most danger if he falls off or gets pushed off. And you could tell that they were, they were like, this is the moment I should, I should push him right now. This is our chance. And then, and then they wouldn't. I stopped on a small ledge with Beth and the top of the mountainside was maybe just a hundred feet away or something. And I looked at her and I was like, I don't think they're going to do this. Do you think I should do it? And she just looked, she just looked down. She didn't say anything. We still didn't believe morally in killing somebody, but at this point we're like, this is, this is our chance to survive. Tommy just kind of came flying over the top of me and went racing up the cliff. I just sort of scrambled up over behind him and he wasn't expecting it at all. But as I was reaching out to grab his gun strap, he sensed what was going to happen, and he turned towards me. I got up close to him, I reached out, I grabbed his gun strap, and I pulled as hard as I could, and he just toppled over backwards. He just kind of went in this arc through the moonlight, and he turned and he looked at me. And he looked at me, we made eye contact the whole way down. And so he hit the ledge in front of me, maybe 10 or 15 feet in front of me, and his whole body let out this really horrible uh, cracking sound. It was really loud. And then he tumbled off in the darkness. And I sat down and I just started bawling. Um, and then Beth <clears throat> showed up you know, right after that, and she sort of sat behind me. 
and wrapped her arms around me and just tried to comfort me. I was like trembling. And I remember, I remember, for, you know, for some reason in that moment, I just needed her approval so much throughout this whole thing. Um, and I remember saying, like, I don't know how you could love me after I've done this. Abdul was still out there, so they had to move. They scrambled down the mountain towards a Kyrgyz army outpost where they were greeted with gunfire. And I saw lots of lights flashing and I saw bullets flying through the sky. I definitely saw tracer fire. So they were kind of really surprised to see four Western kids come running out of the darkness in, in a war zone. Um, and it took them a little while to figure out who we were. And then they, you know, sat us up and slapped us on the back and they gave us some water and sardines and warm clothes and stuff. And then a helicopter flew in and a pristinely dressed man got out. He stepped off kind of out of this dust cloud and came walking up to me. And he said in you know, perfect English, are you okay? About a month after their return home, Jason got a phone call from a journalist, Greg Child, who had been writing about their story. He said he got a call from the Kyrgyz government with unbelievable news. Sue, who they had all seen fall to his death, was alive. And I said, that's impossible. That is completely impossible. Um, I saw this guy fly through the air in front of me and hit the ground and let out this horrible exploding sound and go tumbling off again. John said the same. It's just, it's just not possible. And then um, he faxed us through a photograph that the Army had sent through that was clearly Sue. And yeah, I, I was astounded. I'll never understand how he survived. I remember um, being happy that he hadn't died, for sure. But really what pained me more was that I, you know, I had the capacity. I sort of had this, like, evil inside of me that allowed me to kill. I think most people wonder um, if they were put in a live-or-die situation like this, would they be able to react? And I did. Like, I was able to react in a way that saved our lives. And so that has always been somewhat empowering. But, you know, I still didn't, you know, I didn't want to kill anybody. I still would never want to kill anybody. Um, so I was, I was happy that he didn't die. So Jason and John flew back to Kyrgyzstan, and they were actually granted a meeting with the Kyrgyz Minister of Defense. So since I had the Minister of Defense sitting right in front of me, I just went ahead and threw it out there and said, hey, are we going to be able to see Sharapov? His real name is uh, Ruslan Sharapov. Um, and he said, yeah, sure. I mean, is now good, 10 minutes from now? Then they brought Sue into the room, and he, uh, he walked in the room, and he saw us, and he smiled, and uh, we had, we, he gave us a big handshake, and then we sat down and had a sort of brief and awkward conversation. Um, it's the first time we've been able to talk with an interpreter, and we apologized. I said, hey, sorry about that whole, like, you know off the cliff kind of thing. And he, uh, he kind of laughed when I said sorry about pushing him off the cliff. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and smirked. He's like, yeah, I would have done the same thing. Um, and I guess for me, that was probably the most valuable part of that interaction, the most valuable part to walk away with. I knew that he was facing the death penalty for half a dozen different charges, you know, invading a foreign country, taking people captive, all these kinds of things. And I felt really sorry for him. He was a 19-year-old, kind of really, he had a real innocent kind of air about him. I didn't want to say anything in front of the army that might contribute to him getting the death penalty. 
You didn't want him to die. Uh, okay. no. Why? Um, it just seems to me like that's how the circle of violence continues. Thank you, Jason Smith and Tommy Caldwell, for sharing that story. Jason and Tommy are still climbing rocks around the world and writing about it. You can check out more from Jason's books and speaking events at his website, jasonsingersmith.com. And Tommy's book, The Push, is available right now wherever you get your books. And if you're a movie buff, check out The Dawn Wall about Tommy's extraordinary climb in Yosemite. You do not want to miss this. And last but not least... You can see Greg Child's book, Over the Edge, to read more about the kidnapping and escape of these incredible climbers. We'll have all that information and more on our website, snapjudgment.org. That original score was composed and performed by Renzo Gorio. That piece was produced by Jasmine Aguilera and Luke Quinton. Know this. On Snap, the story is never over. If you missed even a moment, get the full episode on your podcast delivery system, Snap Judgment. And hit us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snap Judgment. And it is the season when evil walks. When the darkness lurks, real people tell their stories of coming face to face with the inexplicable. Snap Judgment presents Spooked, the podcast. Because truth is stranger than fiction. Get spooked on your podcast device thing while you still can. And Snap Judgment Live is going on tour. The world's top storytellers backed by the funk of Bell's Atlas. It's joy and pain and purpose and laughter and meaning and life in a bottle. Snappers drink deeply. Seattle. Portland, Detroit, Louisville, Iowa City, Indianapolis, Los Angeles. We hear you. New cities being added all the time. Get tickets at snapjudgment.org. Snap was brought to you by the team that never eats the last piece of chicken. No, no, we save it. For the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, Papa City Miller on point, and assessment on lock, Nancy Lopez on fleek. Renzo Gorio on top, Nancy Lopez on beat. This Max, she's on the stage. Adiza Egan, she's on tour. John Fasil on mic. Elijah Smith is always on time. Leon Morimoto on display. Taylor DeCott on paper. Shayna Sheely, she's on the big screen. And Jasmine Aguilera is having none of it. And even though this is not the news, no way is this news. In fact, you could lose that loving feeling. Whoa, who that loving feeling. Yes, you could lose that loving feeling and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.